This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. To receive updates on the latest episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com and win a chance to ask questions to our guests. In this um, episode of This is Retrospective Facilitation, uh, we have Kristen uh, and Jay. Kristen and Jay, uh, I got to know them, uh, I think it was through Mark Kilby. They run a, um, I think it's a monthly call for uh, hacking remote uh, facilitation. And so I asked them to come on the show and uh, tell some stories and that they've seen um, facilitating remote retrospectives and stories about remote uh, facilitation. Um, Jay, Kristen, thanks for joining the show. And uh, maybe, Jay, do you want to start introducing yourself and then after Kristen? Sure. Um, thank you for having us. Um, so, I guess a little bit about me. Um, I work as an agile lead or coach or team coach. Um, and I got to know quite a bit about remote facilitation through my previous company. Um, and I really wanted to focus on how to make the space as human as possible, um, try to mimic as far as possible um, real life interaction in a remote space. So that's how I came to be. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, sure. So similar to Jay, we actually have been working together for three years and um, we got super curious about remote facilitation and how one might make those spaces a little bit more effective. Um, and since then, it's been quite a windy journey of talking about it, starting an online community of remote facilitators across the world where we meet and practice, um, writing a book, and yeah, we're still learning a lot about that stuff. Nice, perfect. Um, let me just change my. Okay, I don't think you were actually. <laughs> I told you like you were. Uh, your microphone was picking up too much noise. I don't think it was your microphone. It was my uh, my headphone. Oh. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, so just FYI. Um, cool. So uh, alrighty. So maybe we can start by. Um, Telling a little bit about how would you um, how would you set up uh, a remote retrospective? I think it depends on the context. So if it's a team retrospective, it's probably a little bit easier. And um, so maybe we should operate within that constraint for now, rather than it being some big organizational retrospective. So assuming it was a team retrospective. Um, the first thing I like to think about is how you create continuity from the last space. So it's important to make sure that learning is kind of continuous. So bringing back whatever actions were there and just having that at the forefront of your mind. And then usually we start with purpose. So specifically in a remote space, the tendency can quite easily be to go to a cool tool or some fun exercise um, and we usually start with the purpose. So either it's a learning exercise because there's something that came up for the team in the last sprint and then it'll be a learning specific retrospective or maybe a more 
generic framework, but starting with why you're holding that space before you even get to thinking about exercises. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jay, you I would definitely. Oh, sorry. I would definitely agree with Chris, and I think um, starting with the purpose first is generally our go-to. So, trying to think of um, how to hold that space before you think about tools and exercises, um, because sometimes you might need to focus on relationships and people and sometimes maybe you need to dig in specific sprint data um, so I think that definitely lays the foundation on what you choose to use and how to go about it is there any challenge that uh, you find when you define a purpose uh, for a retrospective I think one thing I found I suppose specifically focusing on the remote spaces is that it's getting to the purpose. It's almost like the before step of deciding what purpose is relevant. You have to do a lot more work to connect with the team space because if it's a fully distributed team, that space is invisible. So how do you even gather data or inform your retrospective when the, the space is harder to observe? So that's definitely one challenge which kind of happens even before you get to the retrospective. Um, yeah, yeah, and then starts the planning, obviously, which we find takes fair to say double to triple the amount of time if it's a, re a remote retrospective. So you've got this cool purpose, but then, yeah, which we can get into in a moment, I'm sure. But that step takes a, a lot longer. Nice. I'm interested on the hard to observe. Um portion of the when you connect today to the remote space how do you is there any strategy that you use to to make that easier jay you want to say something i was actually going to say i think you dabbled quite a bit with this with um um holding like open open communication lines in terms of everyone being on video for a long period of time um there were a couple of things we tried, for example, as a team, just being on team speak. Um, and so, for example, the whole will just be on a call for the whole day, but they can shift in between rooms when they feel like they want to have specific discussions. Um, so to interrupt, is team, speak, again, is team speak a tool or is it just like a way of expressing like a, an open channel? Oh, yeah, it is a tool. Um, We've also used Discord, which is popular with gamers, um, where it's a similar kind of thing where you can move in between Slack channels, but it's for video call. Um, but yeah, but it's very difficult to cultivate that I'm sitting on at the same desk as someone um, in a remote space. But I think Kirsten has a lot more expertise in this. Thanks, Jay. Not so sure, but um, I think... Some of the things I've found is just with all things, it needs to be kind of an incremental evolution towards filling in that space, which might sound very great. But what I mean by that is it can't be imposed on the team. So there's lots of cool strategies, which I can share in a moment, but it needs to come from the team or else none of them are adopted. So oftentimes it's asking the question, you know, 
we are a distributed team. We don't have the same things at our disposable as, as an in-person team. What is important to us about an in-person space and what are we going to do to fill those gaps? And that's actually where teams have been creative in the past. So it's less my expertise and more creating that space for teams to ask those questions and then seeing what they come up with. And so, like Jay mentioned, some teams have chosen to kind of just have a replica water cooler space where they can go hang out on an open video call and um, sometimes they have different slack channels for different kinds of conversations and different working agreements that emerge so we send this kind of a message when we're online if we're going to be away from our desk for more than half an hour we send this kind of a message um, and as a coach by observing how all of these interactions play out over time you actually get quite a lot of data so is there someone that's less active more active um, and as people become more active in whatever space they're choosing to engage, you begin to see similar dynamics. And then the other thing is it just takes a lot more effort. So as a coach, it's about reaching out to people individually often and kind of pulse checking and going the extra mile to build relationships because they don't happen by accident. Nice. nice. Yeah, the one, the one thing which I, you often see in – an in-person team, you know, you get a delivery to your desk and then you see someone getting this kind of a t-shirt delivered or this kind of electronics. And that's a small moment and opportunity for you to connect. And that never then happens in a remote team. So all those little accidental moments of connection, or you see someone wearing these shoes or they take a funny phone call and all those little accidents don't happen in a remote space. So you kind of need to intentionally bring them in. We also use check-ins and retrospectives quite a lot for that. So depending on how comfortable the team is, you can do silly things. Nice. And um, I was speaking with someone that mentioned how they go on walk one-on-one, so remote walks. So I'm going to go on a, on a oh, walk cool. we can go for a coffee. And we, they actually walk and they stay on the call, on the video call, and they, <gasps> I guess this is assuming yeah. the same or similar time zones, or they just go for a walk outside of the building and they physically uh, just go for a walk. So, um, That's nice. Cool. Yeah. That's really nice. Cool, cool. So maybe like to, to circle back onto the, you mentioned the planning, like you said two times, three times uh, compared to, uh, to a regular retrospective. And maybe we can put that figure into like, um, say that you have like a iteration retrospective of a, with a group of say six people um how long would you uh would you take to and say it's a new team to you how long would you take to prepare for this remote retrospective i think it depends on how long we plan to have the retrospective so Generally, we use like an hour to an hour and a half. And then if we were planning for that, it would take about three hours or more. Um, and I think if it's setting up a new team, it might, the amount of thinking involved in preparing for the session, I think is a lot more. Um, because once you have an idea of, of I guess, um, what do you want to achieve and where you want to go and you start building your exercises, you need to make sure that um, your exercises support your direction, I suppose. And then 
you have to think about in every step of the way, do the participants have enough instructions, for example, to engage with the material? Um, do they, do, if they look at the slide, would they know what to do? Are you making sure that there's enough space for them to interact? Um, yeah, so there's like a lot of stuff that goes into preparation because you, you don't have that um, visibility of the room, I suppose. Yeah, I think just to add on to that, I find, or oh, Jen, I've both found that remote calls and specifically remote retrospectives can feel particularly vulnerable because the remote space is already kind of vulnerable because there's fewer body cues, those that we're conscious of and those that we're unconscious of. Um, there's more hesitance to speaks, when do we speak? The space just feels quite cold for a lot of people. And so um, it feels a lot more vulnerable. And the other thing is it also, it biases certain kinds of thinking. And so people who enjoy speaking mm. feel comfortable, but then people who need time to think also can feel a little bit more uncomfortable. So to truly kind of give a remote retrospective as much of a chance of success, you need to think about all those kinds of dynamics as well and how not only your framework that you use, but the way you facilitate and the tool you use can help balance some of those things. So how can you provide alternatives to just verbal communication? Because if you just get on a call and have a remote retrospective without much planning, you'll probably just have a oral conversation. And that's, that's, quite um that's quite hard for a lot of people mm. nice um jay do you want to add something to that before my follow-up question uh no i think because since summarized it well i think it's definitely about giving different people or thinking about how to give different people mechanisms to interact um and not just about thinking about how your session can look cool or be cool, but also about really thinking about creating the space for everyone to join in. And the, the way I was thinking, like the follow up, um, I was thinking is uh, what are the main, say, two things to keep in mind when you facilitate uh, this kind of remote retrospective? What are the first two things that come to mind? to avoid some of the pitfalls you mentioned. One of the first things that comes to mind for me is, and this isn't possible, this isn't at a principle level, it's just quite practical, is have something visual. So don't go into the space without some kind of visual aid. Um, even if it's as simple as a completely blank whiteboard, just something to help um, one, people navigate the space a little and see what's happening. And two, to kind of anchor people in the present because we find it's too easy to get distracted on remote calls. Um, distractions are super easy and they're also super costly on a remote call because once you lose people, um, especially in a retro, safety can be broken, etc. So just having a tool helps anchor people in the present, even if it's just a white screen. So yeah, I suppose visual facilitation comes to mind for me as one of the things. Okay. Um, I think as kind of something you mentioned earlier, Kirsten, is 
is giving people the space to actually engage with whatever's on the screen. So if you have a visual and your visual is asking something from the participants, if you have um, a mechanism for people to engage, whether it's a sticky note or just a notepad or something, um, it also helps anchor people in the space because um, some people, for example, like to write their thoughts out instead of just speaking or others like to see um, thoughts being created over time. And so that allows them to spark new ideas. Um, so if you allow for this interactive visual space, um, you create the shared understanding amongst all participants, which is super helpful when you're trying to extract information or um, generate insights, for example. Hmm. And I think the thing that came to mind for me there is there's still no black and white rules in this space. Mm. So even though mm. I said visuals is my number, one of my number one go-tos, I've also had some retrospectives where I suppose you wouldn't even necessarily call it a retro. It was kind of coming out of a retro as a need where the team just needed to have a really heart-to-heart -heart mm. kind of conversation. Um, and there it was everyone jumping on a call and just seeing each other's faces or hearing each other's voices and 100% focus was placed on that and yes it probably means that some people who are more slow to speak um found it a little bit harder but that, that's where i think the skillful facilitation can come in because you can still create clear boundaries and rules of engagement for that space as a facilitator in the absence of visuals so there i suppose the second arm to your question might be is clearly clearly frame the space for people because coming into a remote space can feel quite uncertain and human beings are not so good with uncertainty. And if we feel afraid, we don't do our best thinking. So you want to reduce that uncertainty or at least perception of it. And there it's about stating your purpose. We're here today to discuss X. This is how we'll do so. This is how long we have. And this is the kind of thing we're hoping to get out of it. You know, something as simple as that frames the space. Um, what happens when, say that someone doesn't have video, only has a phone call? Uh, have you found that, and uh, how have you um, have you tackled that situation where you have individuals on a phone bridge? Um, so, I think sometimes you just have to accept. The limitations that some participants have um, so for example in a previous um, big sort of team meeting that we ran one of our participants was unable to share video call and or speak because the connection just kind of dropped um, and the way that they were able to interact with the with the meeting itself was um, we just provided a Google slide deck and they were able to kind of write their thoughts um, as the meeting was going on, um, which can be difficult, for example, if you don't have a computer screen, but people tend to make like a hotspot, for example, if they're in a pinch. So that is like a very, I would say, like a last resort kind of situation. But in a genetic space where someone's only able to join with a phone, I think 
as a facilitator, you have to think about how best to include them and make the best out of it. Um, if it might be like a super serious meeting or super serious retro where you need their full engagement, then um, you might want to ask the team if it might be a different, um, if there's a different space or time that you can do the retro so that that person can be fully included, but it depends. If I could jump in there, I think also it helps to think about what purpose seeing faces serves um, because what comes to mind for me there is usually it's about reading the room, so helping the facilitator and the participants and also increasing the safety slash vulnerability of the space. And I think what Jay said is relevant there, which is people also should always have a choice. So you can't ever make it mandatory for people to have their video on um, but what you can do is you can model the behaviors you want to see so as a facilitator if you you believe there's value in seeing faces we tend to always have our video on um, we don't ask people always to have their video on because I don't think that's something you're you, you're allowed to do um, but you can put your video on and then that makes it more normal for people. And you can model what it's like to be a little bit more vulnerable and open in the space, which slowly can shift norms over time. Um, and then the last piece of that is if seeing someone's face is a way for you to gauge energy or the room, you can use visuals on slides to help you gauge that in the absence of being able to see people. So sometimes what we do Jay mentioned we use Google Slides. We'll have a little box on the side which has little like clocks, tons of clock images outside the box. And we tell people if you're getting tired or you feel like you need a break, you can just drag a clock in at any point in time. And then the minute we start seeing a few clocks moving around, you know, hey, the room. And that's much less threatening than someone saying, can we stop? You know, raising your voice to break the flow of a meeting feels like a lot, dragging a clock. And it doesn't always have to be a clock. Sometimes it's thumbs up, thumbs down emoji. Um, but just having quick light energy checks um, means you may not be as reliant on video as you think. Yeah, I love that it's like, it can be as simple as that. I think Zoom, that's one of the things I was like finding out in the last few days, they have a non-verbal communication uh, tool set. So in the chat room, there's mm. just like the raise your hand one, there is a, you're going too fast, go slower. There's a series of like uh, things. I think if you Google Zoom and uh, non-verbal communication, you'll find some, some ways to Again, you yeah. need to go into the settings to do that. But I love that it can be like exactly what you said, as simple as this, drag and drop the, the clocks and uh, and that interaction is there. It's awesome. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, I think this touches back to the fancy tool uh, conversation that, that you kind of mentioned at the beginning. You don't need to have like a fancy tool um, as long as everyone kind of like understands the, the concepts. Uh, yeah. Um, if anything, sometimes we found fancy tools detract because um, it creates more uncertainty and uncertainty moves our brains away from feeling safe. So if your tool becomes more of a detractor, then you'd actually be better off without it possibly. So um, there is kind of a risk to using a tool, which you need to be conscious of. Uh, what I also found... Oh no, go ahead. Uh, Oh, I was just going to say, I've also found that sometimes when I see a fancy tool, um, I want to use all the things. And that can also be a trap because um, 
you want to do the cool thing instead of thinking about your purpose and your outcome first. Um, and so when you're in a blank slate situation like Google Slides, for example, um, you're forced to think about your actual um, your actual session or your meeting itself without thinking about how to use the tool. What are some of the uh, signals that a tool is kind of getting in the way that, that you've seen uh, to, to be mindful of? I think you can sometimes gauge people's faces. So facilitators kind of very attuned to the space. So you can see frustration and usually you kind of watching people's faces, but now you need to really watch out for that. Um, and then depending on the tool you're using, if you're seeing low engagement in the session, it could be a result of the tool. And that's where um, it's necessary to ask a very open, safe question, like how is this feeling for everyone? Or um, And actually ask specifically about the tool. But I think... If the tool is easy, there'll be high engagement with it. Like on Google Sites, people probably play around with stuff, copy stuff. It's common. Although that being said, we have been on calls with people that didn't know how to use Google Slides, and then you see things zigging across the screen or just abnormal behavior. Cool. Um, so we're almost uh, wrapping up. Is there like something that um, uh, any of you two want to share before I have a a couple of final questions, but is there something that is outstanding on your mind that we haven't covered? There's, I suppose there's one little strategy and there's lots of levels we could have this conversation at principles, right down to practices, but a quick win practice. Um, Mark Kilby also does it. And um, it's if you're facilitating something in a remote space, that's a little bit, maybe it's a normal team size or even a bit bigger, having a peer facilitator is so helpful. And it doesn't have to be someone that's actually a full-time facilitator. It could just be someone else on the team looking out for some things. Um, and specifically, usually Jay and I will facilitate one looking after tech and one looking after the space and the humans so that the person who's facilitating can do exactly that, can facilitate, can focus on asking the right question, monitoring the energy, connecting ideas, building on ideas without worrying about someone in the chat going, which slide are we on? Or how do I get the link? Or my internet's dropped, I'm getting lost. You know, there's someone who can just do kind of all the house cleaning around so that you can be fully present. Um, otherwise you get quite distracted. That would be one of the things. Um, Jay, what else is coming to mind for you? Um, so for me, I'm thinking about like the principles we have in our book. And one of my favorite ones has always been um, think, thinking about creating equal opportunity for everybody to participate. Mm -hmm. So irrespective of what formula you use, what tool you use, what mechanism, what activity, um, if you're thinking about how each and every person can participate in your session, then I think you're off to a really good start. Mm. Um, yeah. That's actually a good point. I think, Jan, I often use the metaphor of if you're going on a safari and everyone's experiencing it in a different car, um, if you had to choose between experiencing it in a four by four or a bicycle, you'd always choose the four by four, right? Because you don't want to get stuck in a 
in the game reserve on a bicycle. But I think sometimes by accident, we do that to people on remote calls. Um, if you have an entire group physically present in a meeting room and one person on a call trying to listen in, everyone else is having a four by four experience. Um, they're getting to see the game. They're judging each other's body language. It's just such a rich environment for them. And there's one person kind of trying to keep up on a rickety bicycle. And I think if we genuinely do care about every hearing everyone's voice, we need to we need to pay attention to that. Mm. And sometimes we can't. And sometimes the meeting does need to be in person. But then let's just acknowledge the cost we're paying when we don't. Nice. Yeah. This brings to mind the one remote or remote kind of like uh, um, mm -hmm. I think has worked for me in some environments where previously we had like five folks in a room, one person remote, and exactly what you said. Instead of like everyone brings in their laptop, yeah. is a is a definite change of pace. Yeah, we have that being said, we once had to facilitate something which was particularly vulnerable and very big. There are about 15 people in person and only one person remote. And that need for in-person conversation was just so high that the meeting sponsor, you could call them, was willing to pay the cost per se. But then we still try to get creative about how we might bring that person in. And we used something which we now have come to call a pseudo body. So we brought in an external person who didn't have any interest in the meeting and they were kind of this person's um, physical presence as well as connection to the space. So they had a laptop with earphones connected directly. We could still hear the person, but this person was also relaying anything that was missed and was walking around with the laptop to show any visuals that we were using. Um, and they kind of synced up before the time to plan how they would work and decided to stick a photo of the guy's face on his back and chest. And it was actually quite cute because it, it shifted people's mindsets toward that person too. So Nice. I love yeah. it. I've, I've done it before, but not with someone external to the team that doesn't bring any bias. And uh, so that, that's really great. Cool. Yeah. Um, so we're almost done with time. Uh, any final thoughts that you want to share? Um, well, the other principle which I like, which Jay just made me think of, is also how you might bring a little bit of playfulness into these spaces too, because yeah. it's kind of it's kind of one of the benefits of remote spaces if it's facilitated well, is you can gamify things a little bit more easily um, if you if you plan. So, how you can trigger a more playful mindset where usually there's a more fearful mindset because of the uncertainty of the space. So um, thinking about the conditions for play and we use a lot of the Lego Foundation's theory around play and what not just play is, but playful learning because that's what really generates energy when you're connected to a task. So, um, so yeah, so I guess. Is the Lego stuff, uh, that's an in-person thing, right? There's no remote Lego. No. Okay. Not that we've come across. Yeah. There might be, but we just use there, and I think it's five or six principles of playful learning and the conditions around that. Uh, usually, I have like the last three final question I ask uh, to all the guests. So uh, I'm gonna start with the the first one is: uh, What is a book that you are reading uh, right now, or that you just finished reading that you want to share with the audience? 
and it can be about facilitation or about something else entirely. Doesn't. Uh... So um, my book is actually kind of has nothing to do with facilitation. Um, it's called A Mind for Numbers, which is how to excel at math and science, but it's kind of doesn't have really much to do with math and science. Um, it teaches you how to learn. So it's the baseline uh, book for the Coursera course, which is learning how to learn. So basically, in summary, the book is just like explaining like how the mind works and how it learns new information and how it memorizes things. So it's pretty interesting. Oh, mine's kind of related. Mine is um, Your Brain at Work by David Rock. So I read it and I'm rereading it because it's got so much gold about, I mean, most of it he applies individualistically for how you might improve your own productivity and effectiveness. But I find it's incredibly useful when you understand how that plays out socially and the dynamics that are going on internally for each person and how that can affect our ability to work together. So Nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the second question is, uh, if you have a favorite uh, retrospective activity that you'd like to use, I really don't have a favorite like I'm going to be honest it always depends on the like the moment in time and the team I'm working with um I mean I can be superficial and say like I really love the good the bad and the ugly just because I get to use the Clint Eastwood photo um <laughs> nice but it doesn't really mean much yeah uh Kristen same question um Similar answer to Jay, I suppose, but um, some of the ones which I, I do enjoy depending on the team is there's one called Kane, which is constant attention to individuals' needs. Um, and I like it because a lot of the time the conversation in Agile teams is about the team, the team, the team. And this one, the principle is if you attend to individuals' needs, the system will also start looking after itself. And so it's a chance for each person on the team to speak about the needs they have, the needs that are being fulfilled, the needs that aren't being fulfilled. And then you still spot patterns. Um, you kind of can still go through the phases of gathering data and looking for patterns, but people aren't often asked what they need at work and in a team. And when they are, you kind of see these puzzled faces and then these aha faces when they see each other's needs. And um, nice. I like nice. that one. And the final question is, what is your favorite food? Is it a thing to eat? If you had to pick one. Is sugar a food group? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can eat sugar with a spoon. <laughs> Any sweet, if I had to, it would be sweeties. Not nice, uh, it's bad. I feel I feel so conflicted because it's like it's a battle between potatoes and pizza. Potatoes and what is that? Is it really the? What? Actually, it's three P's. It's what? potato, pizza, and pasta. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta move to Italy. Does gnocchi does gnocchi kind of count as two? A gnocchi is like the best because it's like a double. It's like potato yeah. and pasta. Plus yeah. Two. <laughs> winning. 
Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Which change are you going to try in your next retrospective? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag thisisretrospectivefacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com. To get hold of Kristen and Jay's contacts, head to thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash e slash 15. Norm Kurt, known as the father of retrospectives and author of the book Project Retrospectives, suffered a disabling brain injury in a car accident 20 years ago. Visit thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash help norm for details and a link on how to contribute to his fund. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.